Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening. It is a joy to be back with you tonight and uh, to begin a, a series of uh, studies through the epistle of Second Timothy. Uh, tonight, we're going to begin, uh, at least in our reading, by doing something a little odd, and that is turning to the back of the book, because I actually think to get the feel uh, and the context uh, for Second Timothy, uh, you are best served by starting at the back. So if you would, for just a moment, before we return to chapter 1, turn with me to chapter 4 and verse 6. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, and we'll read to the end of the chapter and then return uh, for study this evening of the first seven verses of chapter 1. But Paul concludes this letter by writing these words. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, he means his death, is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get John Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but... The Lord has stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Greek Prisca and Aquila and the house of Onesiphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. With that then as the backdrop, turn with me to the first chapter, beginning with verse 1 and going through verse 7. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith 
faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And I am also persuaded is in you. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Second Timothy fits both into the category of a pastoral epistle as well as a prison letter. If you study the New Testament, you know that the uh, scholars of the New Testament will classify it along with 1 Timothy and Titus as a pastoral letter because it deals with issues related to the pastorate. It deals with issues related to the church. But it's also the case that Paul was in prison when he wrote Second Timothy. Now, it's not the same as when he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or Philemon, because those are letters that were written when Paul was under house arrest. If you go to the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31, we discover that Paul was under house arrest, so he's actually in a rented home. He does have a Roman soldier by his side 24-7, but he has fairly uh, decent accommodations. People can come and go and visit him. And uh, he, at that point, will write those four wonderful letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians and Philemon. I believe that he was released from that imprisonment. I also believe that he uh, engaged in at least a fourth missionary journey that is not recorded in the book of Acts. But then he is rearrested. He is charged with uh, sedition and he is charged with standing against the empire. And this time when he has returned to Rome, uh, Paul does not find himself under house arrest. But rather, Paul finds himself placed in what was known as the Mamertine Dungeon, a horrible place, a terrible place. Some have even speculated that he was put in the lowest region of that dungeon where human refuse would flow and come down. And that is what he lived in. And that is what he experienced during that particular time of imprisonment. Furthermore, as we read just a moment ago, he's there alone. Here is the great Apostle Paul, a superstar for the faith by any estimation, and at the very end of his life, three, at least four missionary journeys, 13 letters, hundreds and hundreds of people having come to the faith because of his ministry, if not thousands, and here at the end of his life, he's alone. He is all by himself, only Luke is still standing at my side. And so that is the context in which you find Paul writing his final words to what he calls there in verse 2, a beloved son, someone he called earlier a faithful son in the ministry. And in spite of all that he has recently gone through, in spite of the fact that the prospects are not very promising, Paul can still say to young Timothy, have no fear when you stand in Jesus. And so tonight, that's what I want us to see is how it is that you and I, as servants of God, saved by his grace, saved for service, can indeed serve him with no fear, no matter where it is that he places us, no matter where it is that he may send us. From chapter 1 through chapter 4, you're going to see that along with 2 Corinthians, this is the most personal letter that Paul wrote. In fact, he's very intimate 
And even in the first chapter, you will see he is very, very reflective. In other words, he's probably at least in his 60s, maybe pushing 70. He has been serving the Lord Jesus now for almost 40 years. And so he is looking back over a lifetime of ministry, thinking about what really matters, thinking about what is really important. What is it as I look over my life that I can say, I was glad I did that. I was pursuing the right things. Look at how God in his wonderful grace and mercy did this and did that. And so what is it Paul would teach you and me this evening concerning the theme, no fear in Jesus? Well, number one, he says we should thank God for calling us, calling you to serve him. He begins in the first two verses, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, a beloved son. Paul begins by noting the calling that he has. Paul, an apostle, a sent one, sent by whom or sent on behalf of whom. He says, I am sent by or of Jesus Christ. This is his office. He is an apostle. He is a sent one, and he has been sent by Jesus Christ. Secondly, he notes also that this was done by the will of God. Paul makes it very clear that what he does, he does not do taking it to his own initiative, but rather he does what he does because Christ called him to serve him in this kind of way. You say, well, Danny, I'm not an apostle. Yes, you are. I see these wonderful young people over here, and they would say, well, I, that's Paul. I'm just, if you're saved, you're an apostle. Not in the technical sense of having been an eyewitness from the time of his resurrection to his, uh, from the time of his earthly life to his uh, uh, resurrection ascension. No, but you're still a sent one. I'm a sent one. Because basically for us, the word apostle means a missionary. You know, time out, time out, time out. I, I'm safe again. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because the fact of the matter is, one of the things we must do again in our churches, and one of the things we desperately must do in the Southern Baptist Convention, is regain the truth that every single child of God is called to be a missionary. You may not be called to go to Russia. You may not be called to go to Thailand. You may not be called to go to the Philippines or to China or to Turkey or to Kenya or wherever. But you are called to be a missionary wherever it is that God places you in this world and in this life. And so Paul says we are apostles. We are sent ones of Jesus Christ. We represent him anywhere and everywhere we go. And this is indeed the will of God. We have his calling. But also, he says in verse 1, we have his promise because he says it is by the will of God according to what? The promise of life. And the implication is the promise of eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus. Why did Paul include that? He doesn't do that in his other letters. I think I know why. He's in prison. Uh, he has uh, seen what the future is probably going to B. He's going to die. He's going to be executed. In fact, church tradition says it was pretty certain that after this letter was written, Paul was very quickly convicted of sedition, which was a capital crime. And because he was a Roman citizen, unlike Peter, 
who was crucified upside down. He was taken outside the Mamertine dungeon and he was beheaded. And that was the end of the Apostle Paul. In fact, it's almost certain that both Paul and Peter died somewhere between 65 and 70 A.D. So in a matter of a few years, the two great leaders of the early church gone just like that. And yet Paul can say, even though my future is bleak, even though my future does not look promising, I have a promise. And I have the promise of eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, Paul would simply say once more, as he does in Philippians 1, 21, I'm in a win-win scenario for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I win. If I die, I win. All this old world can do to me is kill me. And if they do, bingo, just like that, immediately to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I have the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. So we have his calling. We're called as sent ones of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We have his promise, the promise of life, eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus. And then also we have his blessings. He says, I'm writing to Timothy, a beloved, it is the, the root word agape, a, a dearly beloved son. And here are the blessings. Grace, God's unmerited favor. Mercy, God's compassion and kindness to those of us who do not deserve it. Peace, uh, the Hebrew concept of shalom, that is God's wholeness, God's goodness, the tranquility of life that comes being right and related to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, peace from God who is our Father and from Christ Jesus who is our Lord. And Paul says, thank God. Because he has called you to serve him and he has called you with promises and he has called you with blessings. But now, secondly, Paul also says in verses three through five that you should thank God for preparing you to serve him. And several scholars have noted that what you find in these verses is very similar to what you also find in Romans chapter one, verse eight through verse 11. Read the text with me. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears. that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is also in you. Paul begins by giving a thanks of uh, a prayer of thanksgiving, and he begins by thanking God, first of all, for authenticity in ministry, but also for the prayers that accompany us in ministry as well. I thank God whom I watch serve with a pure conscience. That word pure can be translated a clear conscience. Or perhaps it could even be translated, I serve him with a clean conscience. That word serve, by the way, is related to a word that means to render service in the temple, to render service as an act of worship. In other words, Paul saw his calling in life as an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship for Paul was not something you just did on the Lord's Day. It was not something you just did on, on Sunday. But rather, worship was something you did every single day. You worship God by the way you study at school. Uh, you worship God by the way you participate in athletics. Uh, you worship God by the way you conduct yourself at the workplace. 
Uh, you worship God by the way you treat people out in the public, whether it be at the cleaners or at the supermarket or at the 7-Eleven or at the restaurant. And Paul understood that he was to serve God 24-7. He uses that present tense. I am continually serving God, and I do so with a clean, with a clear, with a pure conscience. Now, you ought to note that phrase. Because Paul was vitally, vitally concerned that what we do, we do with a clear conscience. You say, how do you know that? Listen to what he said in chapter 1 and verse 15. He says back in, excuse me, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, the purposes of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. Chapter 1, verse 19 of 1 Timothy. Having faith and a good conscience. He talks about those that are engaged in leadership in the church. And here he speaks of deacons in chapter 3, verse 9. Deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith. How? With a pure, with a clean, with an uncluttered conscience. And so Paul understood how very important it is for you and to me to be clear in our head. And at peace in our souls when we render our service to the Lord. I suspect that many people today don't serve the Lord as well as they could, as well as they ought, because they are guilt-ridden. They have not understood the gospel rightly. And it may even be that in some instances they're in sin. And therefore, because of sin, there's guilt. Because of guilt, they shut down. Because they shut down, they're not able to serve Him with authenticity. And so Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as an act of worship with a pure conscience. And he adds a phrase that he does not do anywhere else in all of his writings. He says, as my forefathers did without ceasing, remembering you in my prayers night and day. In other words, I think Paul is saying there's a continuity here. Uh, the gospel I teach, the gospel I preach is not something that was my creation, but rather there is a continuity. There are those, listen to me, there are those who went before me. And there will be those who come after me. I'm in a line of faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's continuity in the faith. And furthermore, Paul's concern for Timothy is so great. You notice how he almost uses, uh, that one commentator said, he just piles hyperbole after hyperbole. That is exaggeration after exaggeration. Well, I don't think that's the best way to understand it. But it is interesting that he says, I pray for you, verse 3, without ceasing. I pray for you, verse 3, night and day. He is simply saying to Timothy, you're never far from my mind. You're never uh, off of my radar screen. I'm always thinking about you. I'm always concerned about you. I always have you on my heart, in my mind, and in my prayers. I don't know about you, but I have people that I care for like that. I have people that I think about almost every single day. And I'll just briefly utter a prayer on their behalf to the Lord. Of course, having uh, two of our sons on the international field, I regularly think of Tim and Anna and Levi. I regularly think of Paul and Carrie and Micah. I also think of those young men and women that are serving the Lord so faithfully in countries like Thailand and Nepal and Myanmar and India. And I, when I think of them, 
And it's amazing how often God brings them back to my mind again and again and again. I remember when they were at the seminary. I remember when their children were born. And then I remember them packing up and going to these faraway, hard and difficult places. And so I cannot help but pray for them without ceasing. And so the Bible says that he thanks him for authenticity in prayer. But secondly... He thanks him for passion and tears. Look at verse four, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. What's Paul saying? Paul says, um, perhaps I remember the last time we were together. And I remember that when I left, the tears began to run down your face. You say, well, that's not being very masculine. I've come to believe that the most masculine males are those who can shed a tear every now and then. They're real. They're authentic. They have come to understand that life is short and some things like really, really, really do matter. I'll be honest with you. As I think back to on my life, I only remember crying when I was 12 and we lost a baseball game. And when I was 14 and we lost another baseball game. And um, that's about it. Until I moved into my 30s and then into my 40s. You say, why? Well, I think because I was stupid for one reason. I think, on the other hand, I was like many males and I was prideful and arrogant. And, you know, big boys don't cry. Well, I become convinced that that is uh, a bunch of garbage. You say, why? Well, because the biggest boy who ever lived, his name was Jesus. And John 11:35 says when he looked over Jerusalem, uh, he wept when he was at Lazarus tomb, excuse me, he wept. And then elsewhere, when he looked over Jerusalem, he wept. Uh, the Bible says here that uh, Timothy wept when he and Paul were separated, or perhaps he wept when he heard that Paul had been incarcerated and that Paul was now once more being charged as a criminal by the empire of Rome. All I'm saying is this. It did Paul great good to know that his young son in the ministry had great heart, great passion and shed tears on his behalf. There's nothing wrong with the big boys crying. But then thirdly, he also thanked him for his parents and his teachers. Look at what he says there in verse five. I am filled with joy. Verse four, what I call to remembrance the genuine. That word means uh, unhypocritical. Uh, it means sincere. It means a faith that does not wear a mask. That's a great word picture. A faith that does not wear a mask. In other words, you are what you are on Sunday, the other six days of the week as well. You don't come to church smiling and grinning and acting like everything is grand, gorgeous and wonderful in your spiritual life. And then the rest of the week, you live like a like a hypocrite. You put on a mask on Sunday, but the real you is on display the rest of the week. By the way, I, I've lived a long time and I've seen a lot of people like that. I can remember when we lived in Dallas that I worked for a man that uh, came to our church. It was always happy. Always smiling, always knew how to uh, speak, quote, the, the language of Zion, the language of the Christian community. Only discovered that out in the real world, he had an absolutely horrible reputation for being a man who cursed profusely, a man who drank heavily, and a man, just to be blunt, who would screw you over in a business deal in a heartbeat. That's who he was. And he had brought such shame and ill repute and disrespect for the Christian life. Now, on Sunday, he was a model believer. 
But Monday through Saturday, he was anything but a devoted follower of Christ. I actually confronted him one time because I loved him and cared about him. And all he said to me was, well, you know, Danny, you can't. uh, What works on Sunday, this was his quote, what works on Sunday doesn't work the other six days of the week. Well, brothers and sisters, if that's true, then the Christian faith is not real and it's not true. And we ought to pack up and go home right now. I'm convinced that what works on Sunday does work every other day. And I'm convinced that God is honored and God blesses those with a genuine, with a sincere, with an unhypocritical faith, a faith that does not wear a mask. And he says, I believe that's in you. And why was it in Timothy? And I love this. Because it was first in your grandmother, Lois. And by the way, in the Greek text, there's a very uh, tender word here for grandmother. It is the Greek word, mommy. Mommy, M-A-M-M-E with a long E. Mommy. It's almost like mama, mommy. And that was a tender way of saying, it was like saying not grandmother, but grandmama. Grandmama. So he says that this faith was first in your grandmama Lois. And it was also in your mother Eunice. And now I'm even convinced it is in you as well. Don't miss the three generations that are noted there by Paul in this verse. Grandmother, mother, and son. And he says, I thank God for parents and teachers because I am also persuaded it is in you as well. And so he says, thank God for preparing you to serve him. In particular, he used your grandmother and your mother. But then he also says, finally, in verses 6 and 7, thank God for equipping you for service. He says, first of all, in verse 6, we have the spirit. Therefore, I remind you to stir up. It could be translated to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Evidently, he is looking back to the uh, commissioning or the ordination of young Timothy when the church recognized that God's hand was upon him and the church recognized that God had set him apart. And so they laid hands upon him. And Paul says, look, go back. Be renewed. Think again and be reminded of the fact that you have been gifted by God and the church itself recognized that this was indeed what God was doing in your life. I know you may be discouraged. I know you may be timid. I know you may be having a difficult time. I know you may be having doubts. But just remember, once more, there is a body of believers that are convinced that God indeed has this purpose for your life. And you have the gift of God through the laying on of hands. But then he also says, Timothy, operate out of a sense of security. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. First John 4, 18 reminds us that perfect love casts out fear. It's one of my wife's favorite verses. But as I was working on this and finishing up this morning, I, I just sat down and in my notes, I, I jotted it down this way. I drew a contrast. What does God give us and what does Satan give us? What does God give you and what does the devil give you? Well, here's what God gives you, according to Paul. God gives you confidence. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear, so God gives you confidence. He gives you power or strength. He gives you love. And as it says here in the New King James, he gives you a sound mind, which means he gives you wisdom. One translation says he gives you self-control. Following that out, God brings balance into your life. And so God is a source of confidence, strength, love, and wisdom. In contrast, the evil one gives you fear. He gives you weakness. He gives you hate. 
And he gives you confusion, which leads to instability. And so we could all do a little checkup tonight, couldn't we? We could say, what is going on in my life right now? If I were to take a quick inventory of my life, is my life more characterized by confidence, strength, love, and balance? Or is my life more characterized by fear, weakness, hatred, and confusion? You'll be very quick to discern the source of one or the other. I can identify with this text really well. You say, why? Because of my legacy. You see, I do what I do tonight. And I pursue the calling that I pursue tonight because of the influence of a granddaddy and grandmother. And especially also the influence of a mother. Now, my dad was also a believer, but my mother had a a tremendous impact on my life. My granddaddy. Uh, my granddaddy, as I've shared with some of you, uh, was a dirt farmer. Somebody asked me the other day, what's a dirt farmer? Well, it's a person that farms in the dirt. I mean, what, does, this, does this take, like, great intellect? I said it's sort of like distinguishing between a dairy farmer who works with what? Cows. Okay, so they're dirt farmers and they're dairy farmers, and I'm sure they're other kind of farmers. Well, my granddaddy... Uh, was a dirt farmer, which meant that he uh, worked in the dirt and he uh, had a garden and he plowed fields. And uh, my granddaddy was also a man who had only a fifth grade education, only went through the fifth grade. Uh, my granddaddy was also uh, in his latter years, in addition to being a farmer, he was the church janitor. That's what my granddaddy was. But my granddaddy was also one of the godliest men I've ever known. In fact, listen to me. My granddaddy died when I was about 14, had a massive heart attack and was dead in a matter of a day. I was invited to go back to his church. It's a country church in Douglasville, Georgia, called Victory Baptist Church. I guess I was probably around 25 or 26. So my granddaddy had been dead for more than a decade. But when I was introduced that morning to preach, I was introduced as Mr. Galloway's grandson. In other words, even though my granddaddy had been dead for a decade, people still knew who he was. His reputation was still alive and well in that little country community. And when everybody or anybody spoke of Mr. Galloway, they always spoke glowingly. Uh, they always spoke with great respect. Why? Because he was the kind of man that you could call at 2 o'clock in the morning, and no matter where you were or what was going on, he would get in his pickup truck. By the way, my granddaddy suffered terribly from rheumatoid arthritis. So for him just to get up out of a chair was difficult. For him to walk was always painful. But I never saw my granddaddy turn down a request from anyone in terms of their needing help. Well, what was in my granddaddy was beautifully transferred to my mother. And Charlotte can tell you that there was not and never has been a more servant-oriented woman on this planet than my mother, Emmalou Aiken. In fact, when my mother died, my brother-in-law, along with I, along with me, uh, preached her funeral. And Kevin, when he was talking about my mother, made this statement, and I'd never thought about it until he brought it up, and then it hit me. You lived with her for 20 years. And everything he just said is absolutely true. And what he said of my mother was this. I have no memory, no memory at all 
of Emma Lou Aiken ever saying, I want, W-A-N-T. In other words, if you said, Mama, what would you like to do or what do you want to do? Her response was always, whatever you want to do is fine. And the thing is, she meant it. She, she wasn't lying. She wasn't pretending. She meant it because she was happy when she was serving others. And the impact and the influence of a godly mother uh, has, I think, at least in the best parts of me, shaped and molded me as well. So when Paul says to Timothy, I know that you are who you are because of a wonderful mommy named uh, Lois and a wonderful mother named Eunice, you could also say whatever is good in Danny Aiken is a result of a wonderful granddaddy named Charlie and a wonderful mother named Emma Lou. And the point is simply this. What you invest in your children, don't get discouraged. God has a way of bringing and bearing fruit down the road. Stay faithful. Be faithful. Have no fear in Jesus. And you might be amazed at just what God will do in the lives of your children. Just like he did for Lois and Eunice in the life of a young man named Timothy. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this letter. I thank you that even though he was in prison facing death, Paul still had great confidence in you. He had great confidence and love for Timothy. And he was determined till the last breath of his last day to continually to be a servant for you. Well, that's a great model. That's a great example. There's someone then all of us should emulate. And so may it be, Lord, that we, like Paul, will be missionaries on assignment for Jesus and may we be faithful, may we be hopeful, and may we work diligently until that last breath of that last day, until we're received into your presence, where we will be forever and ever and ever as heirs of that promise of eternal life. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.